You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 33. Dr. Carrie Saunders, aka Dr. Food, on why you may be holding on to excess weight. When it's dinner time, I got something you should try. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like many trees. When you're having dinner with me, broccoli. Dr. Yami Kazorla Lancaster, board certified pediatrician, certified food for life cooking and nutrition instructor, certified well coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope that you keep coming back as a regular listener. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Happy Sunday, and welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. I hope that you had a fantastic week. This week's guest is Dr. Carrie Saunders. She has a unique background in psychology, addiction, nutrition, and body composition assessment that is unmatched in the U.S., She is an internationally known presenter and author of the first successful application in oral defense for the American Medical Association on the use of bioelectrical impedance analysis in medical settings. She is also the co-author of the Guidelines for a Standard of Care for Preventive Integrative Medicine and contributing author for the blockbuster book, Rethink Food. Her own book, The Vegan Diet as Chronic Disease Prevention, is a publisher's bestseller, now in its third printing. She supervised the world's first multi-university interdisciplinary curriculum for medical schools on the use of food and medicine, and she is a certified FLT healthcare provider who has worked with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Dr. Saunders is a featured expert on the use of food and medicine in the exciting new Eating You Alive documentary movie, and co-star of the Food Demonstration DVD series, When Bachelor Meets Homemaker. Dr. Saunders lectures frequently to audiences throughout the U.S. and Canada, and you can find more on her work at www.drfood.org. That's D-R-F-O-O-D.org. But before I share this week's interview with you, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ is a life insurance company that was created specifically to reward health conscious individuals. They are able to offer special rates and to see if you qualify, please visit healthiq.com forward slash veggie doctor and use the special code veggie doctor. Thank you for listening. And now on to this week's interview. Welcome, Dr. Carrie Saunders to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. I love your work. I'm a big fan. 
Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you. As you know, I met you last year in Las Vegas, and you actually did a body composition scan on me, and you are so knowledgeable about this topic. I definitely wanted to bring you on so that you can share that knowledge. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of all the sciencey stuff, I'd love to know what your background is and what spurred your interest in food as medicine. Okay, certainly. Well, actually, it started it, as an infant. I was so highly allergic to dairy products that my mom actually took me to three or four pediatricians before it was suggested to her that I was so allergic. So the first two or three gave the typical answers, oh, it's just colic, it's normal. Um, and my mom said that literally I cried basically the first week of my life and I would spit up anything that I ate, um, it, you know, breastfeeding, formula, anything. So what they did was uh, this fourth physician said, remove all dairy products because I don't think she'll live through the night if you don't. Mm -hmm. I was so malnourished at that point. My mom said within a couple days, I was completely normal. I was laughing. I was responding as a, a normal baby. And then fast forward into sixth grade, it was the cool thing to do to have chocolate milk. Mm -hmm. And I decided to have that with my friends at school. And within about three or four weeks, I had gained 20 pounds of water weight. Um, I was so highly allergic, of course, as you understand inflammation, my body started, you know, really packing on the water weight to try to protect my cells. So then fast forward again to college, and I decided that I was very interested in how food affected the brain and the body. So I started writing papers, ended up doing my college degrees in psychology and in health, and then ultimately wrote the book about the vegan diet because really eliminating dairy products from my life is not only what saved it, but absolutely gives it a, a higher quality. You know, I feel great. I'm in my mid-50s. I don't feel like I've aged since I was about 25 or 30. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of how our food chemistry affects our body chemistry. Wow, that is such a dramatic story. Like right from the beginning, you already started experiencing issues with food. Food, there was a food that was your enemy. It was threatening to kill you. That's pretty extreme. It is. It is. And uh, as I've learned more about family history, there were other people that were that highly allergic. But as you and I know, about 70% of the whole planet does not use cow milk in any of the recipes anyway. It's, it's primarily an American, Northern European habit that we've brought over from what we assumed the kings and queens ate a lot of. And, and our ancestors, of course, wanted to give us this rich quote-unquote, uh, healthy diet. And, and unfortunately, they also kind of brought with it all of the disease characteristics that we know come with dairy products. So they meant well, but it's just a cultural dietary habit, and most of the world doesn't do it. Absolutely. No, I love how you use the term habit because a lot of people think that something must be a certain way or should be a certain way or has always been a certain way. But a lot of things that we do with food from the very beginning 
are habits. They're learned. They're learned behaviors. And I actually didn't know that statistic, that 70% of the world doesn't regularly use cow's milk dairy. So that's, that, it's a lot more than I even thought it was. So that's great to highlight. Well, one of the things that you help clients with is weight loss. And obviously, a lot of people are interested in this topic because nearly 70% of our country is carrying excess weight. So from what you see in the clients that you work with, what are some of the main reasons that people end up carrying unwanted excess weight? Well, there are many, but let me give you some of the top statistically. For example, this hormone imbalance that we get from dairy, as we were just speaking about, a lot of those estrogens that are found naturally in all mammal milk, but then also added um, to make the cows overproduce milk, what they say is, imagine being a woman who's breastfeeding given a shot to make you overproduce 10 times the milk your breasts are designed to produce. You can imagine the pain involved in that and the high incidence for, for infection. So these cows go through the same thing, but basically this excess hormone of estrogen causes the body to store body fat. So dairy products is one of our main players, and I always ask my clients to get rid of the dairy products. Secondly, there's a process called leptin insensitivity, and leptin is one of these brain neurotransmitters that tell us when we're hungry and when we're not hungry. And if you're not sensitive to leptin, you kind of always feel hungry. <laughs> you're walking through the kitchen, opening cupboards and opening the refrigerator, and you know you just don't feel satisfied. So leptin sensitivity can be increased um, by eating beans, peas, and lentils, interestingly. So a lot of my friends call me the bean queen because I'm always talking about adding legumes to the diet. And there are about 18,000 different beans, peas, and lentils that we can add into the diet. Um, another reason would be food allergies, intolerances, or toxicity, because in those areas, the body will gain extra weight, hold on to extra weight when it's a toxicity state. The body will store fat to store the toxins. Um, when you're eating things that you're allergic to, the body will store water weight because it's trying to protect the cells as it did for me in sixth grade. Um, and then also nutritional excess. You know, if we eat X amount of caloric energy, let's say we eat 1800 calories in a day, but we're only using about 1500 calories, that net excess kind of gets stored. So we could talk a lot about the quantity of calories, but we're also would need to follow that up with the quality of the calories. You know, I can do 2000 calories a day in a candy bars, or I could do 2000 calories a day in broccoli and black beans. So the quantity of calories and, and also the quality of calories matters. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Okay, so let me summarize just to make sure that everybody heard all of that. So the first one is these hormonal excesses, either getting it through um, dairy, which naturally has hormones in it from the cows, just naturally because they're breastfeeding cows, obviously. Um, leptin insensitivity, which you said we can improve with eating more beans. 18,000 types of beans. That's amazing. I didn't know it was 18,000. I knew there was a lot, but 
And we eat probably like two or three different kinds of beans on average, right? <laughs> Most people know they're black beans or pinto beans, maybe some chickpeas because we eat a lot of hummus now. So there's a lot out there to try. Um, yes. And then there is the just the nutritional excess, eating more than your body burns. And what was the third one again that you said? Um, toxicity. Yes. So the food sensitivities, allergies, and toxicity. Okay. That's, that's wonderful. Okay. So say you're working with a client. What is your typical approach to someone that has a significant amount of weight to lose? Where do you start with all of this? Well, if I have the luxury of seeing them in person, you know, versus doing a telephone consult, for example, I do the BIA, which is the bioelectrical impedance analysis, which we can talk about later if you have time. Mm -hmm. I also do the comprehensive history. I want to know what have they done so far, what worked, what didn't work, was there any temporary effect. I also look at history of injuries, accidents, surgeries. Because as you know from your work as well, sometimes people never quite recover from a surgery or they don't do their physical therapy, they have decreased range of motion, or also I've seen in a couple cases, they had a reaction to the anesthesia, which somehow has affected their metabolism. So what we end up doing then is, is of course really digging in and fine tuning the nutritional intake. I look at lab results. I always work with the physicians that my clients are working with. I never work against physicians. I see no value in not using the integrated medical model. Mm -hmm. um, all, all of the benefits we see are when we work together as a team. <laughs> so I'm not the MD. I absolutely will devise strategies and at the very heading, it says, speak with your physician about the following. Mm -hmm. um, and once I've got this nice history and a relationship with the client, we're looking at, do they fall into any of these categories that you and I spoke about earlier, you know, leptin insensitivity. We're also looking at where they are in the life cycle. You know, menopausal bodies by design are different than prepubescent bodies. For example, so I'm looking at the whole picture and then I come up with a strategy to work with that phys that person and their physician to kind of uh, get them off that plateau to kind of spur on some new energy in the body. And a lot of times we're talking about re-nourishing the mitochondria, getting right into those batteries in the cells, getting them the proper nutrition and hydration they need to function in order to do everything, including dropping body fat and processing it out. Mm -hmm. That is so wise because as we talk about in eating whole plant foods, we are focused a lot on nutrient density of foods. Because like you said before, you could be eating the same amount of calories, but if it's 2000 calories in junk food versus 2000 calories in whole plant foods that are really high in fiber and antioxidants and hydration, you could have very different outcomes from the same amount of calories. Um, so that's great. So in the, in the mainstream United States, what we hear and, and how we approach weight loss, um, of course, you just eat less, exercise more, doesn't really matter what you eat or weigh yourself on a scale and do body measurements. How does it differ from the scientific body composition assessment that you do? 
Well, I use this analogy. If we go to the doctor's office and they draw our blood, and at the end of that test, they say, yes, you do have blood, that's not enough information, right? We're actually looking at what is the composition of that blood? What is the uric acid level? What is, you know, what are the electrolytes? And so if you just stand on a scale, it's kind of like saying, yes, you have weight. Mm. What we really need to do scientifically, and I like to work from an evidence-based protocol, mm -hmm. is we break that body down into the compartments. So what percent do we have of fat, of skeletal muscle, of water inside the cells, which is true hydration, water outside the cells, which if that's elevated, that can be um, an indicator of toxicity. Um, we look at the bone mineral content. So we're looking at, let's say someone weighs 150 or 200 pounds, exactly how many pounds do we see in these different compartments? And then how do we see that change over time given the strategies we put in place. Mm. So if I decide to lay on the couch for the next three weeks, of course, I will lose muscle mass and gain body fat. So we look at how do these little tweaks we can make in our lifestyle actually affect the composition of the body. That's wonderful. And, and I have a question about that because I actually was having a conversation with a friend once and he said that he stays the same way all the time, no matter what he does, but he knows that his composition changes. Like when he's training or running more, he loses body fat and gets leaner. And then when he's, you know, like you said, laying on the couch and not exercising as much, he notices he has more body fat, but his weight stays about the same. Is there any evidence to show that we do have this sort of weight set point and our body just shifts things between the different compartments? I think that's true mostly for people who do have a relatively healthy diet. The, the, the worst composition of the diet, the worst composition of the body, if that makes any sense. There's a direct correlation in, in my practice anyway. So when we talk about losing weight, it's really dangerous to talk about losing weight as a general term. What we need to speak about quite specifically is losing extra body fat or extra extracellular water retention. So that water that's not really nourishing the inside of the cells. We do not want to lose bone density. We don't want to lose skeletal muscle mass and we don't want to lose the water that should be inside of our cells. So just to speak about you know, losing weight, we really need to speak quite specifically about losing the excess compartments that we have because we're basically not using our body. That's what we were designed to do. Move yeah. it or lose it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a whole different way to think about it than we usually think about it, right? People are just interested in seeing that number change, but they <laughs> may not be as interested as they should be in what they're changing about that number. And is it true that somebody can stay around the same weight, but if they change some of those compartments, gain more muscle, lose some of the excess fat, lose some of that swelling that you're talking about, the extracellular, extracellular fluid, is it possible to stay around the same weight and have a healthier composition? Oh, absolutely. And that's the goal if they're already at an ideal or what I like to say healthy. I don't really like the word ideal because, you know, nature makes us different. And, and 
we just want to hit that healthy range. And the reason I use the term range again, it's normal for us to vary in overall weight 3% just in 24 hours. Mm. So just for math's sake, if someone is 100 pounds, you know, let's say they're 15 years old, they're 100 pounds, it's normal to be 97 to 103 just within a 24-hour period because you have the weight of urine and bowel contents, blood volume can change a little bit, um, whether or not you just ate, so the weight of the food. Um, so this 3% variance is normal. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is completely normal to see a weight change overall, but the compos or I'm sorry, the weight remain the same, but the composition is changing overall, completely normal. Mm-hmm. And so we should probably start thinking more of our weight as a healthy range instead of a, just a one specific number. Cause we're always going to be floating kind of around that in, inside of that range, right? Absolutely. That's, that's a very healthy scientific evidence-based mantra, if you will, because I see so many people, they'll actually call me for a consult and I'll ask about goals. And of course, healthy goals are things like, you know, I want to have more energy. I want to feel better, better mood. But when they say I have to be, you know, 123 pounds, these fixed numbers, it's, it's, it's not scientific. It's not normal. It's not healthy. And actually, if we get too much of that kind of evidence, I start looking at possibilities of what's called body dysmorphic disorder mm-hmm. or some of the disordered eating habits that we can get. You know, societies that don't have calories all around them available don't have to worry about disordered eating habits. But because we have so much choice and so much opportunity, we can get ourselves into these little pickles and then we have to look at the psychology of our relationship with food. Oh yeah, that is so important and it is and it's true because not only do we have a surplus of calories and choices, but we also have the influence of the media and what our perception is of what an ideal body should look like. But you're right, you said bodies can look all different types of ways. I recently went to this show here in, in Yakima, I took my two sons and it's, it was one of those acrobatic type of things. And they had like eight performers and half of them were women and they all looked different. They were from shorter to taller to leaner, but they were all very strong, capable, amazing performers. And I love seeing things like that because it shows the diversity of the human body and the diversity of what a healthy human body can look like and perform like. So that is great to point out. Well, so, and I, oh, go I ahead. Reiterate, reiterate that. I'm so sorry. I just think that people need to fall in love with the fact that natural is beautiful. Mm. Natural is beautiful. I am not a fan of this airbrushed, you know, unrealistic Barbie doll kind of stuff. That's not beautiful. If you start thinking that that is unnatural, you can start changing your mindset to realize that what is, what is in nature is what's beautiful. Mm. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, Dr. Carey. I love that. Natural is beautiful. And it's true. And I think, I think we're starting to head in that direction. I know that I've gone through my own disordered eating and my own um, journey with my body and, you know, 
food and all of that stuff. And one of the things I did a long time ago was that I got rid of all my magazine subscriptions. So <laughs> I, I don't have any of those things. I don't subscribe to any of those fitspiration things on Instagram or Facebook. So most of my Instagram, it just shows me pictures of food. So I can't look at it late at night because I want to eat. So, but besides that, <laughs> having those unnatural bodies, I think just constantly is telling our brain that's normal. That's normal. That's what we should look like. But I have seen now companies like Athleta and Lululemon starting to hire models that are normal people. They're normal moms. They're normal athletes. They're not these models that are just, that's their one job is just to look perfect for the camera. And I really appreciate that because I think that helps young girls to see that we can be all different shapes and sizes and there's a big range of what is healthy. So thank you so much for bringing that up. So going back now to the BIA, cause I know that you're a BIA expert, um, this body composition analysis, how do you address some of the specific findings within um, the results that you get for your clients? Okay. So let's start with just, a, let's just cover maybe four of the compartments if I notice that we need to affect a change on their fat, um, now remember, some of my clients need to gain body fat. I actually run into quite a few people who are underweight, and that is very dangerous, as you know, from a medical standpoint. You know, the body requires insulation. It requires the body fat to do fat-soluble vitamin absorption and, and many other processes, um, hormone regulation. So... Sometimes we're dealing with increasing body fat, but when we need to do that, first of all, I'm looking at what are the fats in their diet. There are five different types. We have the trans fats, which should be zero. Those are the ones that say hydrogenated. We have the essential fats, omega-3, 6, and 9. I make sure they're getting those in the right ratio. We have the saturated fats, which according to the World Health Organization should be less than 7% of total calories. So basically, when we look at the saturated, the monounsaturated, and the polyunsaturated fats, the best way to get it right is to be whole food plant-based. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then it really eliminates a lot of this concern and measuring and weighing. If we just eat whole food plant-based in a nice variety, we can bring those uh, fat calorie intake ranges into normal very quickly. We also look at things like liver. Is the liver functioning properly? Because anytime you've got body fat um, imbalances, you want to look at you know, liver function. You look at sleep cycle. Um, certain hormones are only made when we're sleeping that help us regulate the overall body fat. So if someone has a sleep disorder or insomnia, that's an issue. Um, we're also looking at um, athletes who are overtraining. If an athlete is overtraining, they're not allowing the body to bounce back and do the repair work that's required. And sometimes when the body senses stress like that or chronic stress of any type, even psychological, it will gain, it, it will ask the body to store extra body fat in order to start making the neurotransmitters that we use when we're under stress. Mm. So all of this stuff about maintaining a nice, balanced, um, psychological outlook of the world is really important, even when it comes to fat regulation. Secondly, we'll look at skeletal muscle mass. The bottom line here is 
you do need to move it or lose it, as we were kind of kidding about earlier, but some people miss a category. So we need to, to work out for strength. So like actual water resistance or band resistance or weight resistance. We also need stamina or endurance. So strength, stamina, and stretching are the three I'm going to cover. Stamina, endurance, you know, increasing your ability to kind of stay in the game. You know, uh, this would be running, running, anything cardio, increasing the amount of time you spend in weightlifting. And then finally, stretching or range of motion. So things like yoga and Tai Chi, making sure that not only you're strong, but you have a nice strong cardio system, and now you also have a nice range of motion to the body. So those all affect our skeletal muscle mass. From a dietary standpoint, we look at do they eat enough amino acid uh, and proteins in the diet? Now, I've maybe worked with a handful of people in the United States who don't eat enough protein. Usually it's the opposite. We're eating way too much. But sometimes, for example, this is an area where raw foodists or monofoodists are not getting enough. They eat too much fruit and not enough things, for example, sprouts. But we get protein mainly from quinoa, beans, peas, lentils, and sprouts. Those are more than sufficient for our daily recommendations for amino acids and sprouts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And then let's look at the cell fluid distribution. We talked about water inside the cells versus outside the cells. I basically speak about cell hydration as a three-legged stool. So yes, we need to make sure that we're getting enough water intake in the day. Secondly, we need to make sure we're getting electrolytes in our diet. So thinking of an IV, we have potassium, magnesium, sodium. So things like berries, celery, cucumbers, oranges, bananas, foods that are naturally rich in potassium, sodium, and magnesium are helpful. That basically gives us that electric push to take the water from uh, from the day and push it into the cell space. It's an electrical process, so we need those electrolytes. And then the final leg of that stool is the omega-3 intake. And I actually have a handout on my website for free that talks about all the different ways we can get our omega-3s. But the omega-3s are responsible for the outside of the cell, the cell membrane. So imagine it like a grape, and the omega-3s help with that grape skin. The electrolytes push the water inside past that skin. And then, of course, just making sure we have enough water ensures the fact that the body has enough water to push into those batteries and get them going again for us. So it's a three-legged stool. Wow, that's a lot of information. You are so full of knowledge, so thank you for sharing that with us. I have a, I have a question about omega-3s because I've heard different things about 
people, most of my listeners probably are mostly or entirely a plant-based diet. So should most people who are eating a plant-based diet be supplementing their omega-3s with a supplement or is eating the walnuts and the chia seeds enough to get the sufficient amount of omega-3 in our diet? You know what? For most people, I think diet is sufficient, but we have to be careful that they really are eating those sources because a lot of people imagine that they are. For example, um, I'll have a client who says, oh, I eat flax seeds all the time. And then when we talk about it a little bit more, we find out it's once or twice a week. And there is a growing body of research that shows there are genetic differences in our absorption from different sources. So we want a nice variety of omega-3s. So um, it, it's sort of like the calcium question or the protein question. Yes, we need those as a plant-based eater, but everyone needs those. It just depends what sources we're depending on. So I'm certainly happy when I'm dealing with a plant-based client most of the time. Uh, the issue is they're not too high in omega-6 because they are eating healthier. And omega-6 and omega-3 compete for absorption. So when we go ahead and have the omega-3, 6, 9 ratio tested, which you can do from diff different sources, and I'm sure you're an expert in that, and there's omega-3profile.com where people can go and order their own test. But the bottom line is get the baseline. I don't see a need to supplement unless you know your baseline is substandard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then just to remind everybody that your omega-6s also come, can come from plant sources. So if you're eating too many oils and um, those kinds of sources of, of omega-6 fatty acids, then that can throw off your ratio as well. Yes. I hope that you're enjoying the interview so far. I wanted to take a little break here so that I can tell you more about our sponsor, Health IQ. Like I said before, Health IQ is a life insurance company made for health conscious individuals. And the way that they get special rates is that they've gathered data from millions of health conscious people. Over 1 million people have taken their Health IQ quiz. You can go on there and take it too. But they also found that health conscious people have a lower rate of early mortality from looking at the scientific research. So they combined their data with medical research and they negotiated lower rates on term life insurance for the health conscious. And they've partnered with top insurers to do this. So in order to see if you qualify, please visit healthiq.com forward slash veggie doctor and use the special code veggie doctor. Now back to the interview. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit more about food sensitivity, intolerance, and allergy, because I think that this gets super jumbled and I have patients coming in all the time. I know I have an allergy to this because I get stomach aches, or I know I have a sensitivity to this because I get hives, but they're very different. So food sensitivity, intolerance, and allergy are three different things. So you, can you tell us a little bit about what their differences are and how we describe those? Certainly. Well, you know, I do kind of have this personal interest in the whole allergy issue because of my childhood, as we discussed earlier. But typically, if people can imagine that this is like a spectrum of immunity. So I can have a sensitivity, meaning, oh, I just know that doesn't really agree with me, move up the spectrum to hypersensitivity, which it's clearly more of a problem for me than other people. 
Um, we have the intolerances and the allergies. So I'm going to try to take us out of the weeds a little bit. An allergy is typically the protein. It's the body is reacting to the protein in the food. So if I say I'm allergic to milk, I'm allergic to the protein in the milk. Now, there are a couple different ways this allergy plays out. Usually within a few minutes of exposure, up to 45 minutes, you might notice that your sinuses are a little stuffier, your skin is itchy, um, maybe your eyes are starting to you know, kind of get itchy or, or, or you'll notice a rash on the skin. But by eliminating that offender, those reactions can go away. If you move up the allergy spectrum, however, we get into things like IgG reactions. We might not notice these symptoms from what we ate for two to five days after we ate them. <laughs> so, um, you know, those, those issues might be swollen joints, you know, pain in the joints, mood swings, sleep disorders, and so on. But basically the allergy is uh, when the mast cells in the tissues kind of explode and they give us way too much histamine. So two or three of us can be sitting down eating nuts and one person will have an immediate IgE anaphylactic reaction, which, you know, requires an EpiPen, hospitalization, and so on. The next person might notice, well, it kind of makes my mouth itch a little bit, but then the third person is completely fine with it. So it's kind of a spectrum of reactivity. Now, an intolerance uh, is basically when it's the sugar of the food that we're reacting to. So you can be allergic to the milk protein or you can be intolerant to the milk sugar, which for example, let's take lactose. Mm -hmm. Before I go further, let's, let's make sure all of your listeners know, lactose intolerance is completely normal mm -hmm. for a human being after about age three, because we were designed to stop making lactase enzyme around age three, and worldwide we see that's when most cultures have weaned. Um, but back to this lactose intolerance, it means that you're no longer able to properly break down food particles. So um, it's the sugar again. One thing you'll see on the shelf is these products like Lactaid. What they've done is take a lactase enzyme many times from a calf and put that into the milk, which helps you now break it down. But it gets really complicated if not only originally you're lactose intolerant, you're also allergic to the protein. Now you're able to break down the food and now you have an even worse reaction because that intolerance has now been bypassed. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so then we have, so we have the sensitivity, the hypersensitivity, the allergy, and then the intolerance. And the most two, the most common two intolerances that I see are dairy and wheat. Mm. So gluten intolerance and, and then gluteomorphin, gliadomorphin, the breakdowns of, of wheat. And then also with milk, the casein breaks down into casomorphine. And that's actually, by the way, where we see the addictive process. Mm -hmm. So if a person thinks that they might have a food sensitivity, and that might be tricky because like you said, it could take a few days to actually get some of these symptoms. What do you suggest they do? Because I know that there is some testing. That would be the IgG testing, correct? Yes. But besides that, do you ever recommend just going to an elimination diet or keeping a journal? How would you go about finding out? 
Well, I love elimination diets, but unfortunately, we've done so much monkey business with our food supply, with the genetically modified organisms and different pesticides or herbicides being used on the food. To be honest, I, I worry a little bit about how accurate it is when we start adding in new foods, unless you have someone who's willing and able to start with all organic you know, foods, a very basic diet, and then add in only organic foods once every three days. So it can be cumbersome. What I typically suggest is that they work with their physician to pick a lab that they're comfortable with or that their physician already has an account with. Um, there are several out there. They range in price from $100 to $1,000. They're basically testing between 100 and 200 foods with one blood draw. So what happens is the blood draw goes to the lab and they're looking to see which foods it did this person's blood make antibodies to? So what are they reacting to quite specifically? In the old days, many allergy practitioners would do the skin prick test, mm -hmm. the RAS testing. So the skin prick test is up to 50% accurate when we're dealing with food because we don't digest food through the skin. Mm -hmm. With the blood test now, they're 95 to 99% accurate. And some of those labs are LCAT, Immunolabs, MRT, uh, Genova Diagnostics. One caveat, if we're asking the question about wheat, the most accurate test for wheat is actually a stool sample. Um, there are a couple labs out there. I'm usually working with one called Entero Labs, E-N-T, Entero Labs because wheat gives us a lot of false negatives and false positives in blood testing. So that's one which we've moved over into the stool testing. Okay, so whenever we get that test, the IgG sensitivity test, you said that we're looking for the antibodies that have formed. How clinically accurate is that? So when it, get, when it gives you the results, it'll give you like high, moderate, mild, and it kind of ranges of how much antibodies you have to that substance. Should people just start kind of like at the high and moderate and eliminate that and see if they feel better and then slowly add it back in? Or is there a certain assumption about these results that they get back that they're definitely going to be sensitive to those? Well, this is what we like to do. We take that top layer, and all of these tests report you know, the results slightly differently, but we look at that top layer of high reactors, and I ask them to completely eliminate those from their diet for about three weeks. And then try one for three days, you know, wait, try one, wait three days, try it again, wait three days, and see if they notice any of these either immediate or slightly delayed reactions, you know, three to five days. What we notice after six months, if they really have eliminated all of those high reactors, and then we retest, we notice many of the foods start dropping down into slightly less reactivity. So what we see is kind of a threshold. The body reacts at the threshold. If I'm constantly eating things I'm allergic to, we get that kind of leaky gut response where the intestines actually swell and these food particles that are not really ready for the, blood, for the bloodstream get passed into the bloodstream and then we get a longer list of allergies. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we can bring that inflammation down, get rid of the excess offenders, 
over time we see that the body starts kind of uh, reverse triaging. It kind of turns down the hypersensitivity and the allergic response and that, in and that histamine response over time. Oh, that makes so much sense. So basically those ones that come back really positive, really high, they can be making it so that the other ones react, even though they may not be quite as bad for you. Um, exactly. So it just makes, it kind of throws everything in chaos and out in, in, in a state of havoc. So, um, so starting with those top ones can help everything calm down. So yes. then once you see that, pretty much is that person going to be off of those top offenders forever? Well, you know, it's, I don't like to use words like ideal and forever. I guess what I would do is kind of change the lexicon to it's now a choice. I can eat something, but I know I'm going to pay for it for two or three days. Is it worth it to me? Am I educated on what's really happening to my body when I cheat like that? You know, if somebody's going on a cruise or going to a wedding or going, you know, a special occasion and they choose <laughs> to eat something they know is an issue or to go off a better, more optimal diet, it's a choice. It's okay. I think that uh, people need to make that choice informed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of being an all or nothing and feel deprived, they can look at it and be like, well, this is what I'm doing for my health. I don't want to have joint pains and headaches or tummy pain. I want to feel good over the next week or two. So I'm going to choose not to have that specific item. Um, and then what you were alluding to before, as far as the, um, the BIA, your body composition analysis, is when people do have these allergies and sensitivities, when they're eating these foods, it causes inflammation you get the increased water retention, the extracellular water, but also I'm imagining it creates a form of stress too, right? Is that something that can lead to the um, holding on to excess body weight? Oh, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely connecting the dots perfectly. And when we look at the cell fluid distribution, we're looking for 60% inside the cells, 40% outside the cells as a general goal. And when we start seeing changes closer to 50-50, we know that person is quite toxic, they're not hydrated, and we need to eliminate the reason for that toxicity. Is it diet alone, dietary intake alone, or is it, you know, allergic response, uh, for example? Okay. All right. That's great. Um, okay. So moving on to a slightly different topic, because I know that you have a lot to say about this too. What are the most common nutritional deficiencies you see in integrated medical settings and how do you address them? Okay, well generally, we, we've kind of covered the omega-3 issue because as you mentioned, a lot of people are excessive omega-6 and this would be oils and fried foods and kind of junk foods, a lot of packaged foods, mm -hmm. and that competes for the absorption. So we'll you know, first of all, we'll certainly start with any kind of food that we can work with that will increase omega-3, but I do have a handful of vegan supplements that I like to suggest, and Dr. Joel Furman recommends that EPA, DHA equaling about 500 milligrams. That, that would be a nice daily dose, so I've picked some good supplements for that. Um, next is iron. Even with people who are taking iron, it needs to kind of bind and travel with vitamin C and oxygen in the body. 
So I talked to them about laughter, sex, and exercise as ways that we can oxygenate the body. And I also talked to them about the natural forms of iron that we see in the plant-based diet, like bean, I'm sorry, beets, spinach, edamame, lentils. They're packaged not only with iron, but also with vitamin C naturally. So they're very easily absorbed into the body. Um, vitamin D, obviously, this is, you know, I'm sure your, your listeners are aware of this, but it's basically a hormone that we get from sun exposure. So lots of reasons for that uh, malabsorption or that lack of uh, sun exposure. If you wear sunscreen, you're compromising how quickly you can absorb and, and make the vitamin D. Uh, if you have extra melanin or if you work night shift, so you sleep during the day, or if you're a senior, all of these can be reasons that you're not absorbing the sun around you. So we do see vitamin D deficiencies in almost everybody we test. Of course, I'm in Michigan, <laughs> Minnesota, Alaska, and so on. But the test that we ask them to speak with their doctors about is the 25-hydroxy serum vitamin D. Um, next on the list is vitamin B12. And this used to be considered a vegetarian issue. It is not. It is an environmental issue because B12 grows naturally on soil bacteria, which back in the 1970s, we started kind of ruining with our excess use of pesticides and herbicides. So we see B12 deficiencies in everybody, you know, across the spectrum. It's not vegetarian specifically. So Dr. Michael Greger is kind of my template expert on B12, and he recommends 2,500 to 3,500 micrograms per week. So it looks like about a half a Tic Tac is what we need. And that's really important to keep homocysteine levels down. It helps with energy balance, B vitamin absorption, and so on. So B12 is another issue. Um, just a couple more. Iodine. Um, we are seeing uh, more iodine deficiencies, especially here in Michigan. I, I do have a lot of clients here in Michigan, and it could be related to soil and so on. But if you're eating seaweeds, you're probably getting enough iodine. Um, if you do iodized salt, you know, periodically, but you check with your doctor and have that level checked. Um, kelp also has, has a nice uh, amount of iodine in it. And then finally is calcium. You know, most of the cultures in the world get their calcium from anything dark green leafy, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, collard greens, um, kale, even, you know, sweet potatoes and many of the legumes are quite high in calcium. And uh, I, I'm always more worried about my clients who are non-vegan because they're probably getting excess calcium, excess uric acid, and not enough plants in their diet. So they end up with other nutrient deficiencies. But I do think that, yes, we need calcium. We just don't need to drink cow's milk or monkey milk or giraffe milk to get it. We need to get it where other adults in the world get it. Wow, that's great. Oh, thank you for that. A couple of questions. Vitamin D, it is a fat-soluble vitamin. Does it hide out in the fat for people that may, may be carrying excess fat? And can that contribute to low vitamin D levels? 
You know, that's a great point. I, it makes perfect sense to me, although I can't come up with a study to cite for you right now, but it makes perfect sense. Well, it's just something that I've wondered and I've talked with other experts about um, whether, because it is so prevalent. You're right. I mean, I live in Washington state. So, and where I live, it's really sunny, but still half of the year, the sun is really far away and it's cold. So we're not getting enough. So I know that part of it's just our lifestyles and our culture, but I, I just wonder sometimes about is maybe our excess fat causing some of these low levels for the B12. If you do a daily amount, say, because I see children, what amount would you do for just a daily, like if you did it in a multivitamin, that would be appropriate? Okay, so leaning on Dr. Greger again, his recommendation is 1,000 micrograms a day, but um, or every other day. But what I've also been kind of fascinated about is B12 was meant to be absorbed in our mouth, so in the membranes of the cheeks. And so when we take it as part of an, an overall multivitamin, it gets down into the stomach acid. And there is some research that it doesn't really survive our stomach acid very well. Mm. So that remember that soil bacteria would have been present on plants we were eating uh, in nature, and that's where we would be getting that B12 absorbed right into the mouth. So I do the sublingual B12 personally, and um, with kids now, they also have some of the B12 vegan gummy vitamins, and I think by the time they've chewed that, you know, maybe they do have some absorption, but I'm pretty keen personally on getting it sublingually. Okay, and they have the sprays too that you can spray in your mouth, which I'm assuming that that's another one that I recommend because the absorption, you're going to start in your mouth as well. Yes, perfect. And I know John Pierre was um, sharing with us at back, let's see, back in Las Vegas with Chef AJ, a formula called Complement, and it also had vitamin D, uh, omega three, and B twelve as kind of a triad, and it was a very convenient spray. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to look into that and see it, but thanks for saying that because I did not think about when it's in the multivitamin, it's true. You're not usually chewing that you're swallowing that. And so that's something to consider, especially for us um, that want to make sure we have adequate B12 levels. Well, Dr. Carey, this has been great. I want to give you a little bit of time to talk about what services or products that you offer so that anybody listening can partake of all the beautiful, wonderful wealth of knowledge that you have. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, at my website, drfood.org, um, I do presentations all over the country. And so my list of current topics for 2018 are listed there. I also have my book, The Vegan Diet is Chronic Disease Prevention. It came out in 03, and I was very honored to have um, endorsements and input from all of our favorites, Dr. Gregor, Dr. Esselstyn. In fact, I even have a handwritten letter from Patch Adams. Um, he, he read it over for me as well. And so anyway, the good news about the book, although it's, it's from 2003, the only thing we've really changed scientifically is the B12 recommendations were increased, you know, to the 2,500 micrograms a week. But other than that, still a really sound, excellent compendium, 286 human research studies were used in the book. Okay, great. So, 
Yeah, and then also any movies, um, uh, well, there's a new movie out called Eating You Alive. I'm hoping your viewers have seen that one. I'm, I'm actually one of, you know, honored to be one of the featured experts in that and the I Thrive Diabetes series as well. And then I have a DVD that I did with John Pierre, who is a celebrity fitness trainer. And basically the request to us before we made the DVD series was we need this to be really quick. You know, we want to make our own whole food plant-based recipes at home, but they need to be quick. So both of our DVDs, uh, breakfast, snack, dessert, and then lunch and dinner are real simple, quick recipes. If you're here in Michigan or at any of the seminars that I do uh, throughout the country, I'll have my BIA device so we could do body composition together. Or you can go to any body composition website that is supine. I'm a big fan of having the client lay flat because that stabilizes the fluids of the body. Uh, but any, any website out there has a practitioner locator so they could find a body composition device in their hometown. So great. And you do work with clients um, virtually as well that would like to have consults with you, correct? Yes, I do private consultations either by phone or in person. Okay, wonderful. And I was about to ask you where people can get their body composition done if, if they were interested in that, but you answered that question. Great. Well, besides your website, are you on any social media channels that listeners can connect with you at? Yes, Facebook and Twitter, and it's at Dear Dr. Carrie. Awesome. That's beautiful. Well, Dr. Carey, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on my show. That was great. And I think we could have probably spent two or three more hours talking. So I'll have to have you back on to more specifically jump into some of these topics. But I so appreciate your time. So thank you for being here today. And thank you for all of your work. It is my pleasure. Have a plantastic day. <laughs> you too. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocketsurgeonsmusic. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash veggiefitkids, or you can email me at veggiedoctor, V-E-G-G-I-E-D-O-C-T-O-R at veggiefitkids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast, and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again, and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli.